Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone, wherever you may be around the world. Welcome to this joint event um, sponsored by the LSE's School of Public Policy and the Global Commission on Drug Policy. The purpose of this event is to have a look at the state of drug policy around the world, to take stock of advances and progress, but also to take stock of remaining uh, difficulties and challenges around the world. We are very, very lucky to have with us today four members of the Global Commission, who also happen to be former heads of state or former heads of government in their countries. And we have very, very distinguished guests from several continents around the world. And without further ado, I am going to introduce uh, each one of the four. Uh, and let me start with uh, Madam Ruth Dreyfus, who was elected councillor in 1993 to the Federal Assembly of Switzerland. And in 1999, she became president of the Swiss Confederation. After her retirement from, for, uh, from government, sorry, she chaired the WHO Commission on Public Health, Innovation and Intellectual Property Rights and co-chaired the high-level panel on access to medicines. Like her colleagues uh, here today, she's a member of the Global Commission on Drug Policy, which she uh, chaired from 2016 until last year. Next is Madam Hel um, Helen Clark. Um, welcome, Helen. Not the first time that she's joined us uh, at an event at the LSE, and I hope it will not uh, be the last. Uh, Helen Clark was the first woman elected as Prime Minister of New Zealand serving three successive terms from 1999 to 2008. In 2009, after she left office, she became the administrator of the United Nations Development Program and the chair of the United Nations Development Group. She was the first woman to hold both positions. And since 2020, she has been the chair of the Global Commission on Drug Policy. Next is President Galema Modlanthi, who was elected president of the Republic of South Africa in September 2008, a position that he held until May 2090. Subsequently, he was, he was appointed by President Jacob Zuma of South Africa to serve as deputy president of the Republic. And he served in that position from May 2009 until May 2014. He now heads the Motlanthi Foundation, which he established when he left office. And of course, he's also a member of the commission. Last, but certainly not least, is President Juan Manuel Santos from Colombia, a dear friend of the LSE, a graduate of the LSE, and a Nobel Peace Laureate. Um, president Santos served as president of Colombia for two terms between 2010 and 2018. And he worked and succeeded at establishing a peace process that eventually led to a peace accord with FARC, a guerrilla movement active in Colombia since the 1960s. And for this tremendous achievement, he received the Nobel Peace Prize in 2016. So those are our very, very distinguished guests. Welcome, everyone. 
Uh, and let me just remind you what it is that we are here to talk about. Uh, it is now the year of 2021, and it's been uh, 50 years since President Nixon in the United States declared war on drugs. That war on drugs today is widely viewed to have been a failure. Drugs have certainly not gone away, and the punitive and repressive approach to drugs has had many costly and unintended consequences. To begin with, public health efforts in many countries have been consistently destabilized by current drug policies. Economically, the illegal market for drugs estimated somewhere between $400 and $650 billion a year threatens development in many parts of the world. The high market value of drugs as a result of their being illegal, uh, especially in countries with few other economic opportunities, uh, feeds mass incarcerations. And today, one in five of the nearly 11 million inmates around the world is incarcerated for a drug offense. And of course, drugs finance violence, threaten stability and democracy in many regions of the world. So in this discussion today with the uh, commissioners of the Global Commission on Drug Policy created 10 years ago, we want to um, stimulate debate and help move toward reform around the world. Today, we see some progress with the implementation of, for instance, uh, policies that are evidence-based. Some countries are moving toward decriminalization and legal regulation, but in some countries, we also see setbacks, greater repression, state-condoned judicial killings, and other human rights violations. So we're hoping that each one of our guests today can share their views of where it is all going, uh, maybe draw a picture of the current state of drug policy and drug challenges around the world, and if possible, focus on the challenges in their respective uh, regions. So I'm going to ask each one of the panelists to maybe spend 10 minutes uh, tackling some of these questions. Then we will have a round of questions and dialogue among the panelists and move to a Q&A with uh, the public. So let me start with President Dreyfus. Uh, Madam President, uh, the floor is yours. Thank you very much to you and to everyone else. Well, I think, yeah, I can speak and be heard. Um, yes, you, you are absolutely right in your description of the, of the situation. We, we have a, a kind of, uh, I would say, an ocean of repression and prohibition and traditional uh, drug policy centered really on uh, prohibition. And on the other side, since perhaps 40 years now in some countries, but mainly during the last decade, we have uh, reforms on the ground, on national level, which are very, very important. For instance, the concept of harm reduction is something new. Uh, what is new is that it was adopted largely and that it, it helped to create measures to protect the life and the health of the people uh, uh, consuming drugs. And this not only in Europe, Europe might be a pioneer in this field, but uh, Asia, Africa, North America uh, are really developing also 
these kind of measures. And when I speak about harm reduction, just to be very clear, I speak about all what helps people who are consuming drugs to do so with as many uh, as few harms as possible. Exchanging syringes, making safe injection or consumption rooms, allowing drug checking, for instance, so that people who buy on the black market knows what it is in it. And we have also new kind of treatment and a very criticism that has uh, shown that constraint uh, treatment are not those who can uh, bring really people to uh, abstain, for instance, for consumption. We have models of uh, decriminalization, mainly in Europe, but also uh, in other countries, at least the discussion about the disproportion of punishment for uh, small-scale uh, uh, delinquent uh, in uh, Americas, in Africa, in, in many countries. Uh, we have uh, new models of uh, controlled markets, mainly on cannabis, but not uh, only. So what I want to stress here is that it is not just Western-centric. It's not just for the countries who are at a higher level of economic uh, uh, development, but it is worldwide in some countries and others that such reforms are uh, being uh, uh, made. But as I said, these reforms are generally pragmatic. They try just to mitigate also the errors and uh, the harms caused by uh, the policies. And uh, you know, our uh, member, late uh, Kofi Annan said uh, several times that uh, drug may harm people, but a bad policy has uh, harmed much, uh, much more. And uh, I think I, I can uh, really leave to my, to my colleagues to show how this uh, harm caused by uh, failed policies are impacting really the people of the of the world, not only the consumers, but all the environment in which uh, drug consumption, drug trafficking, and so has uh, uh, an influence. So this is called now for 30 years in the UN system, it is called as unintended consequences. But these unintended consequences, we know now what they are, and they have to be really directly addressed. Harm reduction and the reform we see are gen generally not more than just mitigating the harms of this policy. Thank you for your attention. And I think we can make a whole catalog of harms caused by prohibition. Thank you, former President Dreyfus, for those for a very good summary of where we are. Let me uh, move on now, if I may, to former Prime Minister Clark. Helen, floor is yours. And again, welcome. Well, thank you, Andrus, and uh, greetings to fellow uh, commissioners and to all who've tuned in for the session. Uh, perhaps just uh, moving on from uh, the last points that Ruth was making, uh, the Global Commission has had a lot to say about the failed uh, international framework for drug policy and regulation, which is, of course, premised on a prohibitionist uh, approach. It's an abject failure, even by the goals it set for itself. 
1961 single convention on narcotic drugs called for the elimination of the drugs scheduled under it. So the objective for heroin, for example, was for heroin to have disappeared from the world by 1979, and cocaine and cannabis were to have followed suit by 1989. Well, we know the results. Not only are they still around and far from disappearing, production and consumption of them hits new records uh, almost yearly across the last decade. Uh, yet amazingly, this quite unrealistic and counterproductive international framework stands essentially unchanged uh, all these decades. I say counterproductive because the futile and repressive attempts to stop drug use, which have followed from the convention, have had profound impacts on health, well-being, and whole societies. For example, HIV and hepatitis are common among people who inject and use drugs in unsafe conditions, where little or no attempt is made to offer effective harm reduction measures. And in such circumstances, the drug-related death rate from overdose is also high. We see the prison musters blowing out where penalties for using and possessing illicit drugs are severe. And then we see especially harsh punishments often meted out to those convicted of drug offences, which, as you've pointed out, are one in every five prisoners around our world. Uh, take, for example, the judicial corporate punishment, corporal punishment inflicted on drug offenders in Singapore, a form of torture, barbaric, truly barbaric. You know, th these is this unique, uh, repressive, horrible treatment. Uh, that goes uh, to uh, such offenders. If we raised an example of the harms, which is close to home for the London School of Economics, look north to Scotland, where the drug overdose crisis there for the last year we have figures, which is 2019, resulted in more than 1,264 deaths, double the number of 2014, just five years before. And Scotland has the worst rate of drug-related deaths in Europe. These are shocking and horrible uh, figures. We saw the overdo overdose crisis related to opioids in the United States, resulting in more than 81,000 deaths last year. We've seen the extrajudicial killings in the Philippines of people associated with drugs costing thousands of lives. We've seen the war on drugs in Latin America associated with horrific rates of violent crime, including homicide and, of course, of forced displacement. So position of the commission is there simply has to be a better way. And countries which perceive that the international framework lacks all credibility are moving in a different direction with more and more examples now of either legalization and regulation, decriminalization, and effective harm reduction measures. These approaches work within the reality that drug use will not be eliminated. So we need to think very carefully about policy so that we don't deny the right to health to those who use drugs. Thank you, Andrews. Thank you, Helen. Um, 
you put it very well, I think. There must be a better way out there. And I think uh, coming up with that better way is one of the purposes, of course, of the Commission and of the meeting today. Let me move now, uh, if I may, to President Mott Lanthing. Uh, Mr. President, floor is yours. And again, thank you for joining us. Uh, th th thank you very much, uh, Andreas, and uh, let me thank uh, both uh, uh, Helen and uh, Ruth for uh, explaining and uh, laying down the, the framework or for of the work of the Global Commission on, on, on Drug Policy. Uh, and, and I would like to start off by recalling that the objectives of elimination, uh, when we really think of uh, plants that are manipulated by people, uh, are really not realistic. And that uh, where the control regime uh, which uh, started uh, in 1912 uh, was based primarily on the vision of social hygienism uh, and, and that uh, today it's clear that that uh, regime uh, is, is outdated because of the important lessons uh, we 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 gained uh, in dealing with the uh, HIV epidemic that uh, was linked to drug injection that, that uh, has changed our uh, we now uh, from this experience of how we, we have to deal with HIV. Patients need to be part of the response as partners. Uh, in HIV, people living with HIV uh, carry the global response and promote access to uh, treatment, prevention, and care. But on the other hand, when it comes to drug policy, people who are dependent on drugs uh, which means that uh, they have serious physical and psychological dependency, are criminalized by law and are marginalized in society precisely because uh, uh, <clears throat> they, they are viewed as uh, engaging in criminal activities. And so <clears throat> they are denied uh, the requisite help from uh, family members from society, from community members, and so on. And then, of course, this is exacerbated by uh, the, the, the disproportionate sentences meted out to uh, those who are uh, deemed to have uh, engaged in, in criminal activities. And <clears throat> so <clears throat> the 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 situation has led to uh, the sad but unnoticed effects 
that uh, international communities target as part of the Millennium Development Goals uh, to reduce by 50% uh, HIV transmission by the year 2015 uh, among people who inject drugs was uh, completely missed. Uh, research indeed shows that uh, uh, it increased by 30% uh, the, the HIV infections through drug uh, injection. So uh, one of the largest issues we face, uh, as I said, is the, the uh, heavy sentences and, and which uh, burden the criminal justice system uh, for people who uh, are guilty of non-criminal offenses, basically, and, and the pressure of uh, uh, that prohibition puts on cor correctional services in many, many countries around the world. Uh, so we need uh, debates around uh, uh, to uh, ensure that uh, we move away from the taboo around uh, drug control uh, because uh, you know it's it's possible to uh, uh, take a leaf from the example of how HIV, you know, giving the lead uh, in, in, as partners, uh, drug users and, and, and criminalize them. Yeah, let me pause there uh, for now. Thank you, Mr. President. As you point out very well, I think um, the repressive approach uh, has not yielded the kinds of uh, results we can be proud of. President Santos, um, Needless to say, your country has been very much at the center of this debate. Perhaps you can share your experiences and your reflections on the subject. And again, welcome once again to the LSA. Thank you, Andres, and uh, hello to my fellow commissioners. As you just said, uh, I come from a country that probably has suffered the most in this uh, world war on drugs mm -hmm. and it's been a war that uh, has been going on for 50 years and uh, a war that has not been won in 50 years it's a war that has been lost it's been a failure and uh, i have a personal conviction uh, that comes out of a personal experience um, as a minister of defense and uh, then president of colombia um, I was in charge of uh, the policy against uh, drug trafficking. And uh, Colombia, as I said, probably the country that has suffered the most in this war, uh, applied the, uh, the uh, rules of the game that the world established, uh, the punitive approach. And uh, we followed those rules and applied them uh, with uh, a lot of discipline and a lot of sacrifice. And I personally, as Minister of uh, Defense, because in Colombia, 
the uh, drug trafficking is uh, considered a national security problem because of the implications that drug trafficking has in the whole of the country. Uh, the ministry is in charge of the war on drugs. And uh, as minister, uh, I had to, for example, spray the largest uh, amount of hectares of coca uh, crops uh, in the history of Colombia and the history of the world, because Colombia is one of the few countries who used uh, spraying against uh, the cultivation of illegal drugs. I had to uh, extradite, sign extraditions for the largest amount of uh, citizens from a, a country outside the United States to the United States, uh, more than 1,400 extraditions. I had to, uh, and was in charge of um, uh, destroying the coca crops, more hectares than any time in the world. And uh, we seized through different uh, operations and uh, with the help of uh, intelligence from the US, from the UK, from different countries, more tons of drugs than ever. Uh, in the uh, year when I left the presidency was uh, almost 500 tons of uh, drugs that we seized. However, I said, uh, this is like riding a static bicycle. You pedal, you pedal, you pedal, and uh, you don't advance. You look to, to the right, you look to the left, and you're at the same place. So that, for me, was an experience that convinced me that what we're doing was wrong. Uh, and all the collateral uh, damages that have been mentioned here, we have it in Colombia. Just two weeks ago, two weeks ago, our uh, prosecutor general boasted that he had, uh, in the last month, uh, incarcerated 10,000 Colombians. But out of, out of those 10,000 Colombians, almost 7,000 were because of drug-related crimes and usually non-violent drug-related crimes. Are uh, if uh, in the in, in the world, one out of every five prisoners is in prison because of drugs. In Colombia, that figure is much higher. Uh, and uh, I'll give you a, a more recent and worrisome example. After the peace process, one of the one of the main uh, points of the peace process was for the FARC to do a way to help the government uh, to substitute illegal crops for legal crops. Well, uh, unfortunately, because of the demand and the business going on, uh, the drug traffickers, in a way, uh, came into the areas where the FARC was present before the peace process, before they gave up their arms and and came into civil society. And right now is the main uh, source of violence in Colombia. So we continue to be a victim of this uh, very uh, wrong approach. 
the same day, unfortunately, that in the United States, 3rd of November, eight states voted to legalize the consumption of marijuana. In Colombia, that same day, the government uh, pushed the Congress to uh, to uh, uh, reject a law that was uh, trying to achieve exactly the same goal. Just last Friday, or last Saturday, probably the city that uh, consumes more drugs in the whole world, New York, has legalized the consumption of marijuana. Uh, so what, what does this mean for a country like Colombia? That the money stays in the, or uh, is, uh, stays in the United States, but the violence and uh, all the collateral damage stays in Colombia. So that's why I am more and more uh, convinced that what the, the Global Commission on Drugs is trying to achieve, uh, that we have to push even further, uh, try to be more, more effective. We're seeing uh, a trend uh, towards uh, non-prohibition, which is, I think, the, the key aspect of the whole problem, the word prohibition. Uh, but uh, we have to advance much faster because we, we are seeing uh, that the damages all around the world continue. And uh, we have to try to convince more and more people that what we have been doing for the last 50 years simply doesn't work. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. President. Um, what I propose we do is maybe have a, a, a quick round of, of questions and dialogue, and please let us make it informal. So I'm going to pose a question to each one of you, but uh, other panelists should feel free to intervene, comment, uh, disagree. Um, and uh, I'm going to change the order of interventions. Uh, we could make it informal uh, and fairly swift. And then we will open it up to Q&A uh, with uh, our audience, which is which is pretty large. We have uh, nearly 200 people um, connected from very different parts of the world. Uh, let me begin with uh, with Helen Clark. Helen, you ran the UNDP, uh, aside from a political leader, you're a development expert. Um, clearly the way we have been fighting drugs has been detrimental to development. Uh, and, and the conflicts and the tensions between what is done on the drugs front and uh, the need to promote uh, development objectives, you know, the uh, sustainable development goals and other such goals, that tension, that conflict is, is ever more evident. How do you see this evolving and what would you suggest? Um, you know, we're a school of public policy. Many of our students uh, aspire to become uh, uh, public servants and political leaders in their own countries. What are the lessons of this uh, of this tension, and what can we do to make sure that drug policy does not get in the way of development policy? Well, before there was the sustainable development paradigm, there was the human development uh, paradigm, and human development objectives are clearly incorporated into the sustainable uh, development goals. The way in which the war on drugs has been has been fought uh, has very adversely affected the most marginalised among us in our societies. 
And so it's almost as if uh, those who use drugs or those who get caught up in the, the, the fabric of supply at that, that lower uh, end of, of, of selling and curing are treated as evil people, the, the very language of the drug conventions. And once you brand people as and their activities as evil, almost anything goes. Uh, so the, the way this has been approached has exacerbated marginalization and inequity and has really not you know, left a way uh, for the people impacted like that to, to get out of this dilemma because they are so branded by society. Now, this, this isn't right. You know, I, I think increasingly, uh, as we see around the world, this repressive approach uh, is under question from policymakers who get it that it's not paving the way to some kind of drug-free utopia. And let, let's remind ourselves that throughout human history, people have turned to substances which they might find pleasurable. Ask any of us who enjoy a, a glass of Chilean or New Zealand wine, <laughs> or, or which offer them relief from their reality or from pain. Now, some of those substances fall on the legal side of the ledger, others on the illegal, without there being any scientific basis to that. And if there's no scientific basis to a policy uh, of this kind, you really need to, uh, to question it. Uh, so alcohol and tobacco, for example, while causing significant harm to many, are largely regulated and taxed in societies, but other drugs and those who use them are treated so differently. And this is really the paradigm which the Global Commission has challenged since it was uh, founded. Now, it, my own country uh, last year went through a debate around the legalization of cannabis, and uh, there was actually quite a, a good piece of legislation drawn up Unfortunately, the government, having put it up, didn't, then didn't campaign for it, and it very, very narrowly failed. But the argument we made was very much one uh, couched in uh, sustainable uh, development, and it was that if you could bring the illicit trade in cannabis out of the shadows uh, and into a formal market, as, as we now see in the jurisdictions which have legalized, and we hear most about uh, those in the uh, United States, but of course there's Canada, there's Uruguay, Mexico is just being added to this formal legalization. What you do is, is enable economic development uh, to come to a region where, where it's grown. Uh, you enable uh, people to become uh, law-abiding citizens who, who pay their taxes, um, you, you actually can transform uh, communities uh, through uh, the process of legitimizing. And, and one sees some very, very powerful examples of this uh, from uh, places in, in states like Oregon, where quite poor communities, which have been illicit cultivators living in, in fear, really, uh, were able to you know, come forward and people could earn a, an honest uh, living. There's also the fact that if you follow this approach, you free up tremendous resources that the state literally throws down the drain in, in trying to repress. You know, in, in New Zealand, the most common 
uh, sound in a rural area was the police helicopters hovering overhead looking for the plots. I mean, pathetic uh, waste of money. We waste money money on incarcerating people uh, for uh, offences where, frankly, no, no harm has been done by anyone. Uh, so I just think whichever way you look at it, from a right to health approach, a right to development, a right to human development, uh, creating sustainable livelihoods um, in, in the case of cannabis, uh, uh, generating revenue for the state budget by taxing and regulating as you would with alcohol and tobacco. Th this was a no-brainer. And I, I think that's the kind of you know, pragmatic approach we need to take uh, to a drug like that. Uh, there are pragmatic approaches, too, with the other drugs, and Ruth Dreyfus is definitely the best uh, qualified among us to talk about how she dealt with what was called Needle Park in Zurich and its equivalents in, in Switzerland. You know, the, the repression of, of uh, those who injected drugs led to a health crisis. Ruth dealt with it in a decisive and pragmatic way. And uh, that's the kind of thinking and reasoning we, we need. Don't marginalise people. Bring these issues into the open. You know, make people into honest citizens because you change the, the legal settings and always put their health and their well-being and their potential at the forefront of your policy concerns. Thank you, Madam Prime Minister. Um, I'm going to uh, turn to President uh, Motlanthi, if I may, and, uh, and ask a, a political question and also an international relations question. Uh, some of the policies and some of the legislation needed to deal with drugs can be adopted and implemented at the national level. But of course, much of this is international. The demand often comes from overseas. There are many global and international spillovers. And, um, you know, as, as a leader of, of a developing country uh, or an emerging uh, nation, as is President Santos, sometimes, uh, you know, we in the developing world feel that we are at the mercy of policies and decisions that are made at the other end of the world that uh, we do not fully control or control uh, in the least. So politically and internationally speaking, Mr. President, what is the right forum and what are the right political mechanisms to tackle these, uh, these challenges? Should this be a, a, a matter for the multilateral system? Uh, should we tackle it at a regional level? Uh, is that uh, uh, an illusion and do we need to focus mostly on national level policies? What is your take on this? Well, uh... You know, uh, as they say, uh, organizations like human beings have an immune system. They, they tend to fight back and push back against new thinking. Mm -hmm. and, and so since we, uh, our societies are uh, underpinned by uh, either religious beliefs and, and or uh, take their cue from uh, those of us who are in the uh, developing world uh, tend to take our cue from uh, multilateral institutions uh, because, you know, international aid is tied to the policies that uh, uh, are uh, <clears throat> more, you know, popular in the uh, uh, developed world. and and. And, and so 
the the prohibition uh, is what we we simply embraced and and we 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 follow that but it is clear that uh, uh, at, at at national level we we need to uh, initiate debates on on uh, more you know uh, cost effective harm reduction policies rather than to uh, direct the limited resources at our disposal uh, towards uh, this this notion of uh, uh, <clears throat> war against drugs because you you get your criminal justice system you get the police and on law enforcement units you get the military where uh, deployed towards uh, dealing with uh, people who are end users uh, and and so uh, uh, my my take is that uh, we we need to have these discussions uh, at the global level, we need to have these discussions at regional level, we need to have these debates uh, at national level. Uh, in, in South Africa, for instance, we, we have experienced uh, fairly recently the, the benefits of uh, uh, legalizing uh, marijuana uh, and, and the, the uh, terms where that uh, you know, it is available for medicinal use and that uh, citizens have a right to grow it in their own backyards and, and for personal use, it is no longer uh, criminalized. And, and that has reduced the numbers of uh, ordinary South Africans who uh, would otherwise have been uh, uh, criminalized and ending up in uh, overcrowded prisons and so on. So, so uh, in, in a way, it, uh, what I'm really saying is that we need this debate uh, to be uh, initiated at all levels, uh, starting right from uh, the, the national level to regional levels and as well as international levels here. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. President. Um, I want to turn to President, President Dreyfus and ask the same question, but looked at from the other uh, side of the world. Um, one, one possible reading of, of the current state of decision-making is that many of these decisions are made in developed countries, uh, perhaps most prominently the US, but not, not exclusively the US. And, and some, not all, but many of the costs are borne by countries like South Africa or, or Colombia. Uh, so in terms of, you know, just practical politics, what are the right fora and what are the right means of persuasion to move this agenda forward, thinking from the perspective of, of a leader of a developed country? And of course, you know, Helen, Helen mentioned your experience with Needle Park in Zurich. If you want to tell us a bit about that, I think it'd be absolutely fascinating as well. Well, thank, thank you. I mean, let me begin perhaps with uh, our experience of Switzerland being very, very brief. For many, many years, the idea was a pure repressive idea, and it was to, to crush down 
the deal and the open consumption in the streets. I mean, to to liberate the neighborhoods from the presence of uh, dealers and, and consumers. And this was a real example of what we call the balloon effect, because if you you try to to liberate one neighborhood from this uh, what was considered as a as a bad uh, uh, as a bad situation it it just moved to another neighborhood so at one moment the uh, strategy was to push all the people the consumers and the dealers in one place and this had uh, two results a very bad result because the misery of the people in these uh, places was great. The people just spent the whole day and the whole night there being uh, half of the time uh, under the influence of the drug and half of the other time trying to find the drug and, 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 uh, and the syringes and so on. But it had also the good effect to show what the drug issue is really, that it is a health issue, that it is an issue of safety in the neighborhoods, that it is an issue of families suffering from uh, the drug addiction, for instance, from somebody. It was also the possibility to show that uh, there is addiction. Some of these substances are addictive in a strong way, as tobacco is also, but others are, came just to the supermarket and had a controlled, a controlled consumption. So we learned a lot through the open scenes, but we had really to to finish the situation where people were just abandoned there. So from the bottom up, it was a movement to go in the in the scenes and to help the people. And this was the beginning of the development of the harm reduction, health-oriented harm reduction uh, measures. What we learned also is that uh, the focus on repression is just an obstacle to uh, tackle with the issue. It is just uh, focusing on one side, and this side is producing the country that was uh, uh, the aim, that is uh, to, 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 to stigma, stigmatize, as Helen said, marginalize, and uh, put in, in great uh, health harm the, the people who consume the drugs. So what I want to say is, Putting just the, uh, in the focus on repression had also as a consequence that we had no money to do the, the good things, to help the people and to develop health and social approaches. And it, But what we learned was exactly that. We have to collaborate. All these different stakeholders, all these different groups, professional groups also, have to collaborate to understand what the others are doing and not to jeopardize what one was doing. For instance, just to say, at the beginning, the police took the syringes as an evidence that somebody made, uh, made a, a crime consuming drugs. It was important to explain that giving the syringes was an important uh, pass for health security, and that the police should be happy that the people have clean syringes. So bringing all together, all these people together, is absolutely key to make the reform on the ground. And now I come to your questions. Where should reform take place? 
on the national level, and often it is a, a, a movement that is coming from the, the ground, but have to be protected by the authorities and developed afterwards and financed by the authorities. Secondly, the regional approach is very important. I mean, the exchange of experience, the possibility to not to make twice the same errors in one country and the others. What is of concern is that uh, on the international level, we have a straitjacket. The straitjacket, we have three straitjackets, the three conventions on narcotics. And there, in this discuss discussion, it is very difficult to, to, to move forward. What is important are little steps to recognize harm reduction. It was a large battle to, to have just this world recognized as important. And now to decriminalize, to push all countries and to make it recognized on international level that uh, criminalization of consumption is just a crime, I would say, to be very, very strong. So the discussion on the international level is important. Things are moving in the UN family, but they are not moving as fast as, as we would like to see it in, uh, in Vienna, which is the main spot of these conventions. And But we have to make one step after the other and show progress can be made and the experience in the country and in the region show that the results are better. Thank you, Madam President. Um, let me turn to President Santos and uh, if I may stick with the theme of politics, but now move to domestic politics. Um, in many countries and certainly in your region of the world, Mr. President, which is also my region of the world, um, the uh, political line of argumentation that relies on, you know, repression, mano dura in Spanish, can be politically uh, attractive. And of course, there are plenty of leaders that use it and use it uh, for personal political gain. It may, may not be great for the country, but it be it can be good at times to to gather a few votes. Uh, you've been very courageous in espousing a different approach. Uh, and, uh, you know, for, for, for the young future leaders listening in, uh, share with us some of the lessons you've learned. How can a reform-minded liberal political leader make political headway in, um, in uh, promoting reform, promoting the kinds of things that, that we've been talking about today without falling prey to sort of anti-drug populism, which is ripe in so many places? Thank you, Andres. Uh, and let, let me just make reference to, to the previous question, because we, we had an experience uh, where I am now convinced that we have to work at the three levels, international, regional, and national level. Uh, remember, in the year 2012, um, I had a conversation with President Obama. He had... Uh, said in his campaign that we need a new approach on the war on drugs. And so I said, why don't we start discussing this issue at a regional level? And so we did. Um, that was in the Summit of the Americas year 2012. And we were able to, to table a resolution which was voted by all countries in the OAS to convene a special 
United Nations uh, General Assembly for to discuss this issue. Um, and uh, uh, it was convened. Ban Ki-moon uh, convened the special session. And there we encountered the uh, opposition of the, of the Asian countries, Russia, and the Middle, Middle Eastern countries. Uh, so very little was advanced. And then we continued to to try to make reforms at the national level. So one of the arguments was, as long as you don't uh, uh, change the international law, we cannot change our national laws because we would be violating international law. So it's a vicious circle. So we have to uh, uh, fight at, the, at the, every level. I think that it's only to illustrate an example for your previous answer. Uh, previous question. Now, with the question you are telling me and uh, a message for any student uh, uh, is something that it happened in the peace process and it happens here in the war on drugs. Do what you think is right, not what you think is popular. It is very unpopular to fight, to, to go out to, to the street and, and say we need to legalize drugs because it's very easy to do uh, to make populism around this issue. I suffered it. Uh, when I started being president, uh, my uh, political opponents accused me of trying to poison the children in Colombia, of being a drug trafficker, of being a protector of everything bad. Um, and uh, I remember going to meetings with the mothers of many children, and they shouted at me saying, why are you trying to poison our kids? And so I asked them many times, uh, why do you say that? And they said, well, you are, uh, you are proposing to legalize drugs. And I said, that doesn't mean, like uh, Helen Clark uh, uh, mentions so frequently, that doesn't mean that I am in favor of drug consumption. But I'll, I'll ask you uh, this, uh, uh, madam, whatever. Uh, if your son or your daughter is caught with drugs, would you prefer that your son or daughter would be sent to jail or to an institution to help him or her to address this addiction? 99% said to an institution to address this addiction, to address uh, this addiction. And I said, well, that's exactly what I'm proposing. And they all said, oh, why didn't you explain that better? <laughs> so it, it is a very uh, political issue, very easy to distort the facts, uh, but we have to persevere and try to explain to, to people why uh, prohibition, uh, is really the the wrong way to approach this problem that is ne it's not going to disappear but can be controlled and i use i use an anecdote uh, very frequently of uh, a prime minister former prime minister from where you are andres uh, 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 churchill when he he arrived to the united states during prohibition and he arrived uh, through canada to California. 
This anecdote is referring to one of the latest uh, biographies by Andrew Roberts uh, about Churchill. And he asked for a drink. And they said, oh, no, Mr. Churchill, this is prohibited here in the United States. And he said, oh, what a strange country this is, referring to the United States during Prohibition. These fabulous profits that are made out of the sale of liquor, you're giving them to the mafias. In my country, we give it to the treasury. I think this is encapsulates uh, the, 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 the approach from the, from the violence point of view, not from the health, but you can add it also uh, from the violence point of view. All the violence that we are seeing in, in, uh, in uh, Latin America, or most of the violence we're seeing in Latin America, certainly most of the violence in Central America and Colombia, but also in Brazil and uh, now in, in, in Argentina and Uruguay, uh, the main source of this violence is drug trafficking. Uh, the mafias that are created around the uh, uh, drug trade that uh, expand because they start uh, with, the, with the drugs and then they go to kidnapping and they, they go to extortion. And, and you go throughout the whole of Latin America and you see uh, the drugs as a transversal, very potent element in all the violence that we're going through. Certainly in Central America, you see, you see uh, all these, what they call the maras, the, the, these gangs, mm -hmm. that there's a, also a, some tremendous contradictions. Um, I remember telling President Trump, how can you expect the, the Central American countries in Mexico to, to fight uh, drug trafficking uh, when you just liberated the sale of arms to the gangs that are producing <laughs> the drug trafficking. Um, so there's a lot of hypocrisy in, in, in this discussion and a lot of uh, political interest. But again, going back to the question, uh, this is uh, when you have uh, arguments, and I think the truth is in our side, in the side of the commission or the ones who what we want to do away with prohibition, you need to persevere uh, sooner or later. And I think we are advancing. As I, as I mentioned before, uh, I, was, I was pleasantly surprised uh, last Saturday when New York, the number one consumer city in the world, uh, took the step of legalizing marijuana. I think we are advancing. We should advance more. Uh, and with good arguments, and with the backing of the evidence and the science, uh, which fortunately in this pandemic, again, uh, it, it, it is again uh, uh, being respected, um, I think uh, we will, we will uh, reach our, our port of destiny. Thank you, Mr. President. So students, uh, listen up. Good governance involves not necessarily doing what is popular, but doing what is right. And of course, if you stick with it, maybe what is right will become popular, or at least we keep hoping. Okay, um, I'm going to bring uh, Professor Vanessa Rubio into the discussion. Vanessa, if you can turn on your camera. Vanessa is a professor of practice here at the School of Public Policy. She is a former Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs, of Social Development, and of Finance in Mexico, another country, of course, where these debates are red hot. So, um, 
Let me hand her uh, over to you, Vanessa, and she has uh, a couple of questions for our panelists. Thank you. Thank you, Dean, and thank you uh, to, to the panelists for such a fascinating and quite illustrative dialogue. Um, one thing that I've taught my students, actually, we were on a, on a workshop this Saturday, uh, when we refer to the policy making different steps, is uh, that you need to start with the proper definition of the problem. And this means also to have a proper definition of the objective that you want to achieve. And I think that uh, most of your comments, in particular one of Ms. Clark, uh, was in reference to the fact that basically we had the objective wrong since the beginning because the policy objective cannot be to eliminate drugs or to eliminate the drug consumption. So, so my question to, to all of you, to any one of you that wants to, to add uh, some, some thoughts about it is, in the points that we are now in the discussion, try to bring this new uh, narrative and this new approach uh, to, to the international sphere, to the national sphere, what are the achievable objectives? What are the new objectives that we need to define in order for that to provide specific policy answers? And one comment by President Santos in particular, uh, when he said that he spoke with President Obama in, in the, in the uh, Panama Summit of the Americas, I was actually at, at that summit as well uh, in the Mexican delegation, uh, that President Obama wanted to have a discussion on a new approach to the war on drugs, but still is the war on drugs. So going one or two or three steps behind, I wanted to ask you, what are the new objectives that we can look forward to, to attaining? Thank you so much. Who would like to take that up? Well, I think uh, the objectives are firstly around enhancing health and well-being. And if you marginalize those who, who use drugs, that has um, adverse effects, uh, adverse effects on the young whose futures are blighted uh, by uh, arrest and conviction. And of course, in you know, the worst cases can lead to incarceration, being caught up in a cycle of criminal violence, uh, uh, which, which may you know, dominate their lives for a, a very long time. Uh, also, with respect to the, the drugs which have the potential uh, used unsafely uh, to cause great harm to health to the point of death, uh, our focus should be on, on preserving life, on enabling uh, people who, who make this choice to use for whatever reason uh, to be able to uh, do so under conditions that are safe. And I think that's where, you know, courageous politicians like Ruth Dreyfus uh, were, were real pioneers in, in saying the fact that you are using heroin doesn't mean you should be condemned to a death sentence with unsafe needles and, and you know, unsafe uh, uh, consumption. So I, I think the objective really is health and well-being, not marginalising people who make a, a particular choice. And then also, you know, the very real benefits of not over-incarcerating. You know, societies like New Zealand, the United States, uh, the United Kingdom, there's quite a long, sad list, have prison numbers which are far too high. And uh, given uh, the, the high, uh, you know, 
rate of imprisonment for drug offending or drug associated offending, you know, tackling this issue from a more rational perspective uh, would help uh, with, you know, stopping pressures on prisons and stopping locking people up for reasons that really don't hold water. Thank you, Helen. Yes, Ruth, please. It's with pleasure. Thank you, Andres. What uh, Helen was just saying are not really low-hanging fruit. But I mean, there are things we can reach and some progress were made in this direction in the last uh, decades. And I'm sure other will will come. And, and this is something you can really also explain uh, to the people, explain to the mothers. Uh, I made the same experience than Juan Manuel, but on another side, the, we, the mothers came to me and said, please help us because we are despaired. We don't know how to deal with our children and you can perhaps help us because what all, all what was offered until now has not worked. So I think we, 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 we have to do all what Helen said, but uh, the real objective is to take the whole chain of the drug business in responsible hands, in the hands of the state, linked with the development for the region that are now producing the drugs and often have no other real alternatives, I mean economic alternatives, the, the, the transportation and the, the, the retail business, if I can say so. Uh, and uh, this means also to uh, decriminalize uh, the, the consumption. But it is a business. Andres, you spoke about the, how large the benefits of this business are and how they can corrupt institution, how they can corrupt the functioning of the state, how can they have a grip of population of all neighborhoods, of, all, of some region of, uh, of the world where they replace the state. Uh, and the state has to roll back the criminal organization. That means, and I will just finish with that, that the repression at the bottom of the pyramid is more or less without exit. I mean, it, it brings nothing but uh, misery, incarceration, and so on. We have to collaborate better on the international level to tackle with the summit of the pyramid, that means corruption, that means money laundering, uh, that means really uh, international uh, collaboration against multilateral uh, and multinational crime organization. And, uh, and perhaps also uh, one thing that we in the commission has discovered, if you make silos, huh? for instance, one group in the UN, let's say, is in charge with repressing internationally the uh, drug organization, criminal organization. But another is working on uh, corruption and another one is, corrupt, is, is working on human trafficking, let's say. This is also a way not to be efficient because criminal organization are businesses. They are very flexible. They are generally on multiple, uh, multiple uh, uh, issues active. And if one is not uh, 
as lucrative as uh, hoped because, for instance, of uh, Caesar, they can swift to the another. Juan Manuel spoke about the arms. I mean, it's just the same business often. The same people selling drugs in the U.S. and bringing the arms back uh, to their to their countries. So I would say this this fight is very important, and the other mean to 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 hurt really the criminal organization is to regulate the market, take it in responsible and don't let it in criminal hands. If, if I may. If I may uh, uh, Small correction, Vanessa. Uh, it was not in the summit in Panama. It was the summit in Cartagena in the year 2012. Mm-hmm. And very interesting, from that summit, uh, a meeting before the OAS uh, uh, General Assembly in Guatemala, a meeting was uh, convened in Panama. It was chaired by the director of the National Police in Colombia, who had been the hero against the war on drugs. And we brought in a Canadian who had helped Nelson Mandela uh, in the peace process called Adam Kahani. He's expert in scenario planning to, to try to uh, discuss different scenarios in order to try to reach one that would be uh, uh, sort of acceptable by, by everybody. In that discussion, Uh, things emerged that are happening right now. Uh, Very interesting. For example, if you you make a poll in the national police of many countries, would would you be in favor of legalizing drugs? Uh, I haven't made it, but talking to the policemen in my country, many of them will say, yes. because they know that the amount of of effort that the police is making uh, to try to fight an unwinnable war, they are the ones who are in the front line. Uh, in, the, uh, in a recent meeting that we had of the commission, um, I was informed that, uh, we were informed that the, uh, the Canadian Mountain Police one of the most prestigious police in the world, uh, supported a, the, a resolution uh, calling for the legalization of marijuana, which is a very, very interesting uh, aspect that I think uh, we could approach more because if the police start saying, listen, this is the, the, the way to go, this will facilitate uh, and marginalize those populist that uh, uh, are defending the mano dura, as Andres, uh, the hardline uh, approach, which has been probably one of the biggest obstacles in order to advance uh, faster in this approach. Thank you, Juan Manuel. Um, yes, uh, President Dreyfus was saying that, uh, you know, it's big money, it is indeed. I was uh, thinking as I listened to you that, um, you know, 600 billion a year is twice the GDP of my country, Chile, <laughs> in a whole year. That's a lot of money. Vanessa, back to you. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Dean, and thanks for the clarification, President Santos, and thanks for all of your, your very thoughtful uh, uh, answers and, and uh, you know, approaches to this. 
Perhaps one thing that, that President Santos touched on, and I think that is quite relevant uh, for, for what we should do next, for the next steps to perhaps thinking of a, of a new uh, system and a new international approach, is this precise fact that countries cannot do it alone. We are part of a global market. Uh, as as, as uh, Andres mentioned, I am from Mexico. Uh, if we want to do a different policy approach, we need to do that in coordination with South America, with Central America, with the United States. We could not do it by ourselves. What are your thoughts about what are the next steps so we can actually have some changes in this international regime and a different approach and a different perspective so that the rest in our uh, national uh, countries can follow? Um, thank you so much again for, for this great panel. Well, we we debate uh, a lot <laughs> what would be the best way to get change. Mm -hmm. And at, at the global level, it's very difficult. You, you've had uh, an unholy alliance of, of states uh, which, uh, which don't usually agree on anything much, but they come together around repressive drug policies. And there's been a lineup of the, the US, China, Russia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, uh, sort of Yeah, the strange bedfellows, as it were. Now, you know, maybe with the current moves in the US, there's a chance for uh, something a little more rational. Uh, we've also, in the documents that we've issued from the Commission, talked about uh, ways of, of moving where perhaps a, a group of countries could uh, Uh, come together to propose um, inter-say modifications of treaties which they would um, uh, you know, collaborate on. Um, increasingly, we see countries, in a way, thumbing their nose at the conventions, uh, you know, and saying, well, I'm legalizing cannabis because uh, that's in the interests of my people. And, you know, re regardless of the visits they get from the International Narcotics Control Board telling them off. Um, I, th I think it, it would be wonderful if some consensus could be got uh, through Central and, and Latin America about how to proceed. But again, you know, there will be a range of views there uh, too, in, including, um, you know, when governments change. When the government changed in Colombia, the, uh, the regime Uh, that followed President Santos was not, of course, as, as forward-leaning as, as he was on, on these issues. Um, so I guess at, at, at the Commission, we really encourage uh, countries to study what others are doing, begin looking at uh, pragmatic reforms based on uh, evidence of what works, and there's, there's plenty of that around the world, in the hope that, you know, over time, like water dripping on a stone, Uh, there may be some change of heart at other levels, but I think there would have to be some profound changes of, of, of government in a range of countries uh, for there to be you know, significant movement at, at the global level. But uh, other commissioners may like to chip in on this. I, I think uh, um, you, you remember, Andres, uh, very well, when uh, we started uh, globalization the free trade agreements and uh, the concept of open regionalism. You know, the, the, some, some regions started to make free trade agreements among them. Um, I think this is one of the approaches, not the 
not the only, but one of the approaches is precisely at a regional level. That could be a, a, a way to expand in order to go for the big prize, which is the global approach. Um, but if you see many regions, look at what is happening right, right now. Uh, in the last uh, month, uh, with uh, the former NAFTA, Canada, United States, and Mexico. Mexico just legalized marijuana. <laughs> the Senate, mm -hmm. oh, they voted. Canada has marijuana legalized. Mm -hmm. And in the United States, we already have 15 states legalized. So, in fact, what has been created is a, a big NAFTA for marijuana. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, in Colombia, that produces the best marijuana in the world, has been left out. Uh, so we, we need to, to take uh, uh, advantage of that market. And we, we have to, uh, we have to uh, approach that as a business, mm -hmm. regulate it, uh, and uh, it's also a way, I'm, I'm just saying, one of the ways that we can approach this problem. Uh, so by doing it in different steps, simultaneously, I think is the most effective way to do it. Spoken like a former finance minister, clearly. <laughs> um, President Dreyfus. And then I'm going to move on to Q&A because we're running out of time. And I'm, you know, there, are, there are a few questions that I'd really like to address. Yes, I will be very, very brief. Um, you were speaking about the first step, the next step. For me, the next step is really decriminalization of consumption and possession and, and self-production for their own uh, use. And this is possible. I mean, the convention, uh, the 88 uh, convention, ask for punishment, but it's also uh, written in the convention that if the constitutional order or the law in the country is not punishing the consumption, this is accepted. So, I mean, there is no barrier, in my view, for a real decriminalization, and this is, must be the next step, in my view. Very important words. Thank you, Madam President. Um, we only have about 10 minutes left, but I want to make sure that we do get a few questions from, from the audience in. And I'm going to begin uh, with a question from a member of parliament in the United Kingdom. Uh, Ronnie Cowan, member of parliament from Inverclyde, uh, asks the following. As we try to move forward with this narrative, what value do you put on lived experience? Uh, I imagine he means, you know, accounts by people who've been in the middle of this debate or... or uh, you know, have special weight and carry special relevance uh, in trying to persuade other people to change, to reform. Anybody like to um, take a stab? Yes. Yes, and, and thank you, Ronnie, for the, the question, because Ronnie has been a, a good supporter of, of the cause in Scotland, which, as I said, has the highest rate of, of drug-related deaths uh, in, in Europe, which, which is shameful, and, and there are people working to, uh, to change that. And uh, one of the lived experiences which has come to the fore uh, there is, is that of Peter Crikant, who is himself uh, a, a former uh, user and an injector of drugs. Uh, his life has changed, but he 
still has a deep feeling for those on the you know, the mean streets of Glasgow uh, using unsafely as as he once did. And he has started a, a harm reduction service, a, a drug consumption space in a mobile uh, van, now converted ambulance. And, uh, you know, initially the police ignored him. Then someone decided to, you know, sort of harass what was happening. Uh, then there was an arrest warrant. Uh, now they're backed off. But it started a whole debate in, in Scotland about, you know, we have these terrible figures. What are we going to do about it? Here's a guy with a lived experience who's out there doing something about it. You know, why would we stand in his way? So I think, you know, the lived experience can be very powerful in promoting uh, policy uh, reform and change. And I, I really salute Ronnie and the others who've got in behind and supported uh, that put into practice in, in uh, Glasgow. Very, very important point. What, I, what I've learned from my colleagues in the psychology department here at the LSE is that narratives that involve actual stories from human beings are the ones that really change minds. So uh, Ronnie's point, I think, stands and is very important. Let me move to a question from Marzia Violini, who's uh, an LSE alumni who lives in London. And I'm going to uh, address this to uh, President Montlanthe, if I may. Um, she says uh, the discourse on harm reduction uh, up until now has divided drugs into illicit and legal with you know, tobacco, um, alcohol, and increasingly cannabis in the second category. But uh, from everything that's been said so far in this panel, this separation would not seem to be warranted. So, Mr. President, how do we move into a world in which uh, there's only one approach for regulating and treating all these substances, not two approaches as we have today? Well, uh, <clears throat> remember, uh, I, I said, uh, you know, bodies and uh, organizations and governments have an immune system which tends to uh, push away uh, new thinking. And, and, and so it is important to uh, appreciate the, the each step taken to open up the debate because it is only through uh, dialogue where once people debate the issue, once the issue is put uh, out there for discussion that uh, uh, at the end, the, this artificial separation uh, will be eliminated. Uh, <clears throat> but for now, uh, it, it, it represents uh, a certain mindset that, uh, you know, the, the uh, tendency, I mean, the, of all the uh, hyper, you know, uh, uh, psychoactive substances, None is more harmful than alcohol, and 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 yet, uh, you know, society broadly speaking has come to accept that uh, alcohol is legalized, uh, and and so uh, through debates and, and and discussion, it's possible to uh, get to a consensus that you know we we shouldn't be uh, introducing this artificial separation here. Thank you, Mr. President. Uh, the, the, the separation is artificial indeed. Uh, uh, 
uh, as Prime Minister Clark said, it'd be terrible if, you know, a glass of New Zealand Chardonnay or Sauvignon Blanc were to declare it illegal. Um, uh, same holds, I suppose, for Chilean wine. Um, we are in the competition for, for the same market and the same consumers. Um, let me read a couple questions uh, uh, um, more to the, uh, to the panel from our audience. And we have questions from people from all over the world. Um, we have a question from Jaime Calle Moreno, who is a SOAS student here at, uh, at, in London, but he's from Malaga, Spain. And he says, crop substitution programs like the one Mr. Santos undertook in Colombia seem to have been very successful. Nonetheless, in other countries and in the current debate, uh, such programs are either being ignored or pulled back. So what can we what can we learn about crop substitution and how do we make this a policy that is used elsewhere? I suppose the question is for President Santos, but uh, if anybody else would like to come in on, on the broader experience elsewhere, that'd be great as well. The, the key for successful crop substitution is to give the peasants that are growing the illegal drugs an alternative. As long as they don't have the income to feed their children, they will replant, they will, they will maintain the illegal crops. This is an experience that we had. And when we started to give them an alternative, the replanting went down to almost zero. So this is a, a key aspect. Uh, and an, another issue that I, I, I think that is very important in, in those uh, medium or, or short-term goals is that the same, uh, the same uh, approach that you cannot uh, consider a consumer as a criminal, he's somebody who is sick, you cannot uh, consider a peasant who is growing coca or marijuana as a criminal. How can you explain, and this happened to me, to a peasant who is growing marijuana, that he is going to jail while in the state of Colorado in the United States, producing it, uh, consuming it, and selling it is legal. These contradictions you have to do away with as soon as possible. Yes, uh, Madam President, Dreyfus. It's just to add that crop su substitution needs a lot more than just finding another crop. It mm -hmm. needs roads, it needs markets, it needs to disenclave uh, uh, whole regions. I mean, it's a de development issue, it's not a farmer issue. And uh, we see that, uh, uh, for instance, uh, having uh, growing uh, poppy or, or, or coca, I mean, it's worth to bring a, an airplane to take the, the, the crop and to bring it, I don't know where, in the lab where it will be transformed. This will not be done with uh, potatoes. Uh, so, I mean, it's really uh, uh, many promises were made to farmers and they went to be ruined and bankrupt because these proposals were not built on a viable economic uh, business plan. So uh, the, the response is a global development and not just crop replacement. 
Thank you, Madam President. Um, uh, as I look at the clock, I think we may have um, time for maybe one more question. We're running out of time, but we have three Latin Americans on the call, so I suppose allowances will be made if we run over a minute or two. Um, the last question uh, comes from Amin Grabi, who's an LSC student from Tunisia. And she says, um, in a developing country such as Tunisia and North Africa, law enforcement officials continue to entertain a very repressive approach uh, and the relationship with drug users and civil society remains conflictual. Um, what's the advice on the ground uh, for people who want to reform policy in countries like Tunisia? How do we move the debate? How do we move the uh, attitudes of uh, law enforcement officials, of politicians, of public opinion? We have four leaders on the call who've been doing that uh, um, for the last uh, a few years or a few decades even. Uh, what do we say to the student from Tunisia? What's good practical advice to move the debate forward in a country like hers? And you would like to take that? Well, it's probably not so different from how you begin to mobilize from around policy change in, in area, any area, is it? Uh, you need to find like-minded people. You need to identify uh, elected officials and policymakers who, who may be open to hearing the arguments. You need to assemble the body of, of, of evidence. And I, I think the Global Commission on Drug Policy's website is a very good uh, place to start because the, the, all the evidence is there as to why the current regime doesn't make sense and, and, and what you know, might be able to be uh, to be done, and and then use the mechanisms you you have in your society to advocate the op eds, the social media, the uh, you know the, the the lobbying. You know, I recognise that you know in many societies there isn't the kind of openness and civic space uh, for this kind of advocacy to uh, to happen. But Tunisia uh, did come through. Um, the uprisings in the Arab world with a substantially improved uh, constitution, a democratic transition, and, and much more freedom of speech and civics and political space. So I say to uh, Amira, I think it was from Tunisia, you know, use that space uh, to start creating you know, the ground on which you know policy change might be might be built. Thank you, Madam Prime Minister. Yes, Madam President. Yours. I'd like to, to ask something because I am very touched by this question from this tu Tunisian student because just a few days ago, Tunis has sentenced three young, uh, young people to three years of uh, jail for consuming uh, cannabis. So, I mean, it's really a situation that is uh, that shows that uh, drug policy can be used to try to to domestic, if I can say so, or to, to bring under control the use of a country, to bring under control those who might uh, want to change the society. And this was also the beginning of the world war on drugs. You remember that one of the advisors of Nixon said, well, at the time when we introduced the war on drugs, we had two problems. We had uh, the black people 
the, the Afro-American being rebellious and we had the hippies being rebellious. But you cannot incarcerate somebody because he's a black American or because he's a hippie. We can incarcerate them because they are consuming drugs. So this is also the drug uh, policy repression is the tool to uh, to 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 that shows the fear that the authorities and the power has from the young people and from the marginalized people. So good luck to the student and to all the fellow of of her in Tunisia. Uh, use the means you have and, uh, well, I, I'm sure it will change. Thank you, Madam President. I think with those touching and wise words, we will put uh, an end to the event. I want to thank everybody who's joined us today. I want to thank my colleague Vanessa Rubio from the School of Public Policy who helped put this together. Uh, I also would like to thank the uh, Global Commission on Drug Policy for co-sponsoring this event with us. And of course, to our four very distinguished uh, uh, panelists and guests, it is not every day that we get the privilege of, um, of uh, chatting, discussing, and planning the future with four uh people who've led their countries, either heads of state or heads of government, and who also, and I want to say this from the heart, have had the courage to uh, embrace a much needed policy reform, which as President Santos said, is not always the most popular on the ground, but it is the right thing to do. And uh, when one pursues the right thing to do um, long enough, uh, ideally, it also becomes the popular thing to do. So. Um, President Dreyfus, Prime Minister Clark, President Mothlanthi, President Santos, thank you very, very much. And to everyone who joined us, uh, please come back to other events online at the School of Public Policy at the London School of Economics. Thank you very, very much. Good afternoon, everyone.